So this past August, uh, an inmate whose name is Mark David Chapman appeared before a parole board uh, for the 12th time. And for the 12th time, his request for parole was denied. Uh, Chapman is being detained. It's actually just a few miles up the road from us at Greenhaven Prison. And you may know that name because 42 years ago, um, he, uh, he started serving a 20 years to life sentence for shooting and killing John Lennon uh, outside his Manhattan apartment building. It was back in 1980. And, and he's repeatedly expressed remorse for what he did. He describes his actions as despicable. And, and while he continues to apply for parole anytime he gets the opportunity, he also claims to be at peace with the reality that he may end up remaining in prison for the rest of his life. And when I looked at the papers and saw the stories, I saw that many Lenin fans celebrated the fact that Chapman had been rejected for parole, and, and they're resolved to do whatever they can to make out he lives out his remaining days on this planet uh, within the confines of a, of a prison cell. Um, so that's just one tiny, small snapshot into the United States justice system and how it works. And it's, of course, a very imperfect system, uh, but we have it in place because we need to deal through, work through justice issues. We need to wrestle through these difficult, challenging justice issues. It's a reminder to us that, that there is this longing for justice that's really hardwired into the human heart, right? Uh, whenever we come across uh, violence or exploitation or abuse or crime or corruption or whatever it is, something inside us wells up and, and longs for something to be done about that. There's this, there's this dis dissonance that, that doesn't really get resolved until justice makes its way into that encounter, until the perpetrator gets apprehended and, and called to account, until restitution gets made. Justice is that process that brings it all into the light, brings it all out. It, it creates the space for a case to be made, and then ultimately justice gets carried out with a right judgment. So there's this inseparable link between justice and judgment. And people oftentimes love to talk about justice, but we have a harder time wrestling through judgment. And, uh, and the question we're going to look at this morning is, what part does God play in this whole justice thing? Uh, we're in the final week of a series called What About That? And uh, we've been making our way uh, over the past several weeks through different obstacles uh, that people cite uh, for their reason of being challenged to move forward uh, with the Christian faith. And, and the last question we're going to look through this morning is, what about judgment? Or, or to be more particular or to frame it more frankly, what about hell? Very uncomfortable subject. And you know, the, the heart of the God that you read about in the Bible that God's heart beats to see justice done. So there's these two Hebrew words, mishpat and zedekah, uh, justice and righteousness. They are at the very core of what matters to God. 
Uh, Psalm 11.5 says this. It says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I don't know how you've responded when you heard that passage that I just read, but many hear things like that and say, whoa, wait just a minute. That's a little bit over the top. A God who rains down coals of fire and sulfur? No, that's not, that's not God. Uh, many find the convo- conventional Christian belief in a God who judges, or particularly in a God who would condemn anyone to an eternity of misery in a place called hell, as utterly unbearable. Contemporary culture, you know, it has very little problem uh, with, like, the genie God, right? The, the one that you kind of take out and you rub the lamp and he comes out and he gives you three wishes. Um, doesn't have much problem with the cheerleader God, right? The one who exists to just remind you of how awesome you are all the time. Um, or there's the motivational coach God, the one whose purpose is to navigate you on your journey towards self-actualization. But the thought of a God to whom humanity is accountable to, a God who judges, that sounds to many as absurd or ridiculous or or archaic. And I've often heard it um, expressed in variations of a phrase that sounds something like this. I don't believe in a God who judges. I believe in a God who loves, right? It's, it's kind of an attempt to, to kind of neuter God, uh, to, to take him completely out of this whole justice issue. You know, okay, God, here's how it's going to work. We're going to deal with the justice issue ourselves. Look at how good we're doing. Um, God, you can just work on the love part, and we'll leave it at that. But the question is this, is is it really an either-or issue? Is it one or the other, that God has the choice? He can either love us or he can judge us, or is it better understood as a both-and issue? Like, Like two sides of the same coin, love and justice, at least to me in the way that I see things, they come bundled together. It's, it's like a packaged deal because what I've found is that when you try to, to, when you try to pull the two apart, it, it has a way of spoiling the both of them. So give you an example. Um, how loving would it be for a father to sit back and do nothing while his child gets mugged and beat up and left for dead, right? And then after getting a beating, he walks over to his child and says, you know, I'm really sorry I, inter- I didn't intervene, but I, I didn't want to judge anybody, you know, but, but you know what, son, I really love you, right? That, that's not love, is it? That's maybe a vacant platitude, but it's definitely not love because real love does more than just affirm. It engages. Real love steps in and addresses what's wrong and it works to make it right. You see, love requires justice, and, and righteous justice 
is done in love. And so despite all the attempts, here's the reality. The God of the Bible will not be neutered. He will not be tamed. He is the great I am. And like it or not, that's the God we have to deal with. Uh, He will not become the God that we would like him to be. We can't turn him into something less than he is. He is a loving God, and he is a just God. And those two attributes, they always work together in tandem in a cooperative way. So it's not like he's going to be like, okay, I'm turning on the love valve today, and tomorrow I'm turning off the love valve. I'm going to turn on the justice valve. No, they're both flowing side by side from his character. And so as we start to address this issue of of a God who judges, uh, we have to start with understanding the God who is. There's nothing more urgent than encountering the God who is. I want you to just listen to these words that Isaiah wrote when he he encountered the God who is. He says in, in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's, that's kind of what happens when we encounter the Lord for who He is. When we see Him clearly, we see ourselves clearly, and we understand how great He is, how awesome He is, how other He is. And... Uh, It's a reminder to us that we don't change God, but as we encounter him for who he is, he he changes us. And and, and that's the point. All right, so so the Bible consistently describes God um, as a God who both judges and loves. And so I want to look at... um, a classic verse that you are probably familiar with, you may have heard as an example, it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and it so beautifully describes the love of God. John 3.16, it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. That's, that's a great verse, but we're not gonna stop there. Let's keep reading. Two more verses. The next, the next verse in verse 17, it continues to clarify that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he's just showing this heart of God, the reason, the motivation, the purpose for sending Jesus was to rescue and save, not to judge or to condemn. But after 17 comes verse 18, and it says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So it's like John ignites this red flag warning flare 
that all of humanity living apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ are living like dead men walking. And what he's saying, to be clear, is that to reject the saving, sacrificial work that Jesus so lovingly left his home in heaven, came down here, went to the cross to accomplish for you and for me. He says, if you do that, that's a problem. That's, that's not okay because those who refuse to receive Jesus and accept the price he paid are destined to pay that price themselves. And the outcome of doing that is nothing short of tragic. Rejecting Jesus basically means living with a guilty verdict tattooed to the soul. And, uh, you know, and I fully understand that uh, this is not feel-good uh, message. Yay, rock Christianity. This is heavy-duty reality, and I'm throwing it at you this morning. Welcome to Sunday morning at Lakeview. Um, and there's typically a follow-up question to that, right, for, for those who are kind of pondering all this. If you're, if you're seeking, if you're kicking the tires of Christianity, the follow-up question usually sounds something like this. So are you telling me then that people wind up in hell just because they don't believe in Jesus? That's the question. And, and let me be clear, the answer is no. That is not the answer to that question. The reason people end up in a place called hell, according to the Bible, is because of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. And there's this sin issue that Jesus came to resolve, and if you don't accept and receive his resolution, that means you've got to resolve that one yourself. Uh, sin is at the core of the issue that needs to get dealt with. It's, it's that attitude of the heart that, that seeks to be our own God instead of letting God be God. It's described as treason, uh, turning away from the Creator, telling God, thanks, but no thanks. I've got my own plans, and I intend to do life my own way, not your way. See you later. So sin is rebellion against the God who created us. And so here's the thing, to turn away from him is to turn away from the source of life, the source of every good and perfect blessing, and to leave that. So um, here's how Rebecca McLaughlin describes it in a book that she wrote. She says, if Jesus is the bread of life, then turning away from him means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, living apart from him means living in darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, losing Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then leaving Jesus leads to eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, then rejecting Jesus means paying that price ourselves. You see, there is a sense in which God kind of directly sends people to hell in the final day of judgment. But here's what you need to understand. It doesn't happen against the grain of the human free will. What happens at that moment simply cements 
the way that person has freely chosen to live out their lives. In other words, here's the thing. No one goes into hell kicking and screaming. Everyone goes there willingly and voluntarily. So hell is ultimately God honoring people's free will decision to live their existence apart from him. And he honors that. All right, so, so just think about things in this way. I, I want to I turn to Romans chapter 1 and make a little more sense of this. And, and this is a um, passage about the wrath of God. And when you think about the idea of the wrath of God, maybe you think about, you know, lightning bolts from heaven and thunder and all kinds of big things. It's a little different here. Uh, here's what it says. It says, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, just to unpack what's happening in this passage, uh, the wrath of God is not lightning bolts from heaven. You know what it is? It's what happens when God lets people do what they want and the outcome is not good. They experience the consequences of getting what they want. So the wrath of God is God stepping back and saying, okay, if you are so hell-bent on going your own way and living for yourself, then I'm not going to stop you. Wrath is God handing people over to their lusts and their passions, and their selfishness. And, and that freedom, that autonomy leads to self-destruction. And ultimately, that ends up becoming hell. So, okay, so again, I'm, I'm sure I'm kind of breaking some paradigms here for, for some of you. Um, you know, you've seen those Dante Inferno posters, right? And those pictures of, you know, flames and fire. But what I want to suggest is instead of Thinking about hell in geographical terms, like a place, think about it instead in relational terms, because we are made for relationships with God and with man, and, and, and hell is the removal of those relationships. The imagery of the fire and the brimstone, yeah, it's there in Scripture, but it's, it's just that. It's, it's imagery. It, it points to to, to something far greater, like maybe that, that spark of self-absorption that ignites into the flame of self-destruction and it scorches the soul and leaves it in absolute alienation. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, those in hell are miserable 
but it's because of their unchecked flames of pride or paranoia or self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong. All their humanity is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. You kind of see it's, it's the outcome, the trajectory of a life lived apart from God, and that trajectory just goes on towards affinity. Uh, he describes hell as the ultimate monument, though, to human freedom. Those there are, he says, there are only ultimately two kind of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And that's just a, that's a picture of what justice looks like. Humanity choosing to live independent from God, and that leads to a place of absolute devastation. But like we said already, it's not an either or, right? It's, it's a both and, and so we've looked at, we've looked at the justice part. Now let's, let's take a look at the love of God part. I want to I wanna turn to, to Luke 22. This is one of those Sundays where we're doing some flipping in the Bible. Usually I like to stay in one passage. Uh, I tried to do that this week, but it wasn't working. So uh, we're going to Luke 22, and this is going to show us a very different snapshot, a snapshot of a kind of hell, but a hell that Jesus went through uh, for us. Listen, listen as I read it, and I'm going to start in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So this is, this is Jesus, um, and it's his final stop before going to the cross. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Gethsemane, that literally means oil press. It was the place where, where all olives would be crushed, and, and that precious oil would become extracted and collected, and and. and what an appropriate place for the location where the crushing weight of sin, the sin of the world, began to bear down on Jesus, the Savior. And Jesus here, he's struggling. He's struggling in a way that you've never seen before. Overwhelming pressure is pushing down on him, and, and he's in agony. He's, he's on the brink of utter despair. And it's so intense that that blood even starts seeping out of his sweat glands. And he's feeling that crushing weight of sin that's crushing him physically. It's crushing him spiritually. And emotionally, he is being crushed for our iniquities and our transgressions. He pleads in prayer, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Now that cup that he's talking about, that's a metaphor uh, for the cup of justice or the cup of God's righteous wrath. So the just punishment for the sin of the world 
was in that cup. The penalty for every lying word, every lustful thought, every rebellious action, every selfish attitude, every prideful ambition throughout the course of history is all being set there before him. And Jesus is literally, or maybe it's figuratively, going through hell. And, and, and so this is the one and only time when Jesus asked anything of his father, and his father said, no, there is no other way. Justice demands the price be paid. And out of love, Jesus paid that price for us. The prophet Isaiah foretold it. He saw it coming and he writes, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. See, Jesus was crushed for us. He took that unbearable cup, the one that was in front of you, the one that was in front of me, and he drank it down completely. And he went through hell so you and so I wouldn't have to. That's, that's the point. It, it took him from the garden to the cross. And there on the cross, he was forsaken so we could be forgiven. He was condemned so we could go free. He was rejected so we could be accepted. Life and salvation and forgiveness and all of that was bound up in Jesus and what he did for us. And so the cross, that is the place where the justice of God and the love of God intersect perfectly and completely. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the one and only Son of God. See, judgment day is going to happen. It is a reality. But if you've trusted in Christ, it's past tense. The gates of hell are closed to you. The doors of heaven are wide open because of what Jesus did. And this is, this is the gospel. This is the explained that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what I want to tell you is that that requires a personal response. That's how it gets applied to your life. That response is a response of receiving Jesus. It's a response of turning from sin and turning to trust in Jesus. In other words, it's, it's not automatic Everything Jesus did out of love gets applied personally to those who believe. And so I want to ask you, do you believe? Have you trusted? Have you made that faith decision to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Let me close with one last passage. This comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's a, that's a picture of, of, of justice. Uh, that's a picture of that moment in history when the accounts get balanced, when justice gets applied. And so that heart for justice, when we see wrong, we want to see it made right. We feel it. We see it. And that passion we have pales in comparison to the passion of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look around us as we cry out for it. Who's the one? Who's going to right all the wrongs? There's so many of them. Who's going to do it? And we look in vain. We prop up politicians, presidents, world leaders, celebrity, athletes, inventors of technology. And it's not getting any better. None of them are worthy, but there is one. His name is Jesus. The tribe of the Lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That means he conquered the grave. He went to the cross, he died, and he rose again. And he's going to pick up that book, and he's going to close the last chapter, and he is going to resolve the history of this world. And so there is no wrong that will not ultimately be made right. And uh, he will make it right. And he has made it right. He longs for us to meet him as Savior now. So we don't have to meet him later as judge. Let's pray together.